Good evening. Indeed, he is a firm foundation, right? Trusting in him is a sure thing. We are so privileged as the people of God to be able to have our eyes open to that truth, right? And that's why we are here. That's why we come here every evening, because we want to express our love to him, and we want to hear from what he has to say to us, because we know it comes from a loving God, even with a difficult book like the book of Numbers, right? He is going to speak to his children. So with that, let's just join. I'm going to pray right away this evening, and then we'll get right into it. Father, again, I thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for being patient and kind and good and steadfast and just, Lord, everything that you are towards us who are undeserving of it. We stand in infinite gratitude towards you, Father. We thank you so much that we have the privilege of being able to live forever and ever and ever with you so that we can show our love and gratitude to you, Lord, again, in a perfect state, Lord. And I thank you for that. But now, Lord God, we are here. We're on this earth, and we need you. We need you to help us understand your word. We need you to help us to, to live this Christian life, Lord God. And we know you have, we have your spirit, as we say every Sunday. We know we have your spirit, and we are relying on him to do everything this evening. And with that being said, there's only room for one to be magnified, and that is you and you alone. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so good evening. You guys can open your Bibles to uh, Numbers chapter 2, and we're going to do the whole chapter this evening. Last week, Lenny began chapter 1 of the book of Numbers, and in chapter 1, we saw the Lord's call, the Lord's call for Moses to make a census of the people, in particular, namely, all the men who were 20 years old and older who would be able to lead, fight, and defend the nation as they moved forward, heading to the Promised Land. So far, a lot has happened, and a lot seems to have been taking place, but in reality, at this point, where we are in the book of Numbers, the nation is only one year into their 40-year journey into the wilderness. And most of the wilderness time... Um, is actually takes place in the book of Numbers. By the time we finish, 39 years will have passed or have taken place. And as Pastor, uh, Pastor mentioned in the overview, a lot of important events will take place, in particular in this book, so we do not want to miss any of the details in order for us to have proper understanding. So the Israelites were to be ready and committed to go to war. But really, in reality, it was the Lord who would ultimately do the fighting, right? We know that. He would be the one empowering them to do all that they can do for Him as they move forward. This whole journey would be easy if they would just wholeheartedly obey. We saw in chapter 1 the call to make the census. We saw the appointments of the leaders for each of the tribes. The count of all the men 20 and older from each tribe, which totaled 603,550 men. And we also saw the exemption of the Levites. The exemption of the Levites included not only them not being numbered, but there was also the reminder of their specific work concerning the things of the tabernacle. 
I'm just going to read the ending of chapter 1, verse 47, which says, But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by the companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath in the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the reality expressed in this passage was the reminder of who they worshipped and how that very one whom they worshipped is in fact holy. And they need to remember that always. And even though they were a holy people, they were not intrinsically holy like the Lord, but only by declaration of the Lord setting them apart for him. So the Levites, including their appointed work, were a reminder that God is with them and is their strength, but also that he is holy and not to be trifled with. And because of this, they were to be careful how they approached him. So as close as he was with them, there was an ever-present reminder that there still needed to be some distance between him and them, and that in order to come to him, there needed to be atonement. This next chapter now speaks on how these camps were to be organized and grouped. And to be honest, again, it's not an easy passage to get a sermon out of. There's a lot of numbers, a lot of names, right? But, as we have been saying so often, these details are here for a reason, and we need to trust our Lord that he will speak to us, even through what would seem to be a difficult word for us in our context. So, it is on us to be attentive. So let's be attentive to, to his word, and by doing that, we will stand as we read chapter 2 of the book of Numbers. And the word of God says this, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Abinadab. His company is listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar, his company as listed being 54,400. And the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Halam, and his company as listed being 57.4. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side 
shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Eliezer, the son of Sheduar, his company as listed being 46,500. And those to the camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. The chief of the, chief of the people of Simeon being Shelumiel, the son of Zerishadai, and his company as listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Buel. His company as listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim. By their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amahud, his company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being, being Gamaliel, the son of Kadahazer, and his company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin being Abaddon, the son of Gideoni, his company as listed being 35,400. All those listed at the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100, and they shall set out third in the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, his company as listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. The chief of the people of Asher being Pagiel, the son of Okran, his company as listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahira, the son of Enam, his company as listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last. Standard by standard. These are the people of Israel as listed by their fathers' houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. That was a tough one. All right, you guys may be seated. So, as I kept on reading this, and reading this, and reading this, what kept standing out was the fact that there hadn't been any negatives since Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Now, we know there's many ne negatives with the nation of Israel. But as I was just reading this, where we were at, I felt like it hasn't been a while. Now, granted, we're just in the beginning of this book. But I started going back in Leviticus, and I couldn't really find any since then. So I'm certainly going to apply the principle of new beginnings and God's mercies being new every morning as I take my approach to this this evening. A lot has happened in Exodus since they left Egypt. Once they left Egypt, there were certainly many ups and downs, and it certainly showed that they got off to a rocky start. It didn't have to be a rocky start, right? But nonetheless, it was. 
All that took place in Exodus only took up the first year. Then the book of Leviticus begins on the first month of the second year. And here's where God gave them the civil and ceremonial laws that pertain to them as a holy people as they begin their journey to the promised land. Now that God made them a people for his own possession, they needed to know exactly how God wants them to be and how they're called to be. And they as a nation had to embrace these laws and get their thinking in line with God's thinking. All the laws of Leviticus took up only one month in the second year. So only one month went by as soon as we got to the book of Leviticus. Numbers actually begins the true journey, right? In fact, 38 out of the 40 years in the wilderness take place in the book of Numbers. Again, as Pastor mentioned in the beginning, we learn of the whys, the hows, and the whos of why this actually happened, this 40 years. So again, applying the principle of God's mercies being new daily, which is like a new beginning, right? Since Nadab and Abihu, they seem to be getting off, as my title for this evening, getting off to a good start. God gave Moses and Aaron specific instructions they followed them, and the people also followed them. So they truly were getting off to a good start. And getting off to a good start always puts us in the best position of having success in just about everything. It's not necessarily a guarantee for success, but it puts us in the best position to have success. It also doesn't mean that if one gets off to a poor start, because many of us do, that there is no hope for success, because that's not true either. But ideally, it is good to start well, and of course, continue to do well, and eventually end well. This is clearly the mind and actions of one who wants to be successful, and the mind and actions of one who truly loves the Lord. So I want us to see three important concepts that we should follow if you want to get off to a good start that I saw as I was reading this text. And the first of those is going to be under the heading obligation. An obligation, meaning our moral responsibility that we have to obey our Lord, and of course, Israel's moral obligation to obey the Lord. Israel had to, be, to obey all that was commanded for them to have success. We saw at the end of chapter 1, after God gave Moses the instructions for the people to make a census, that the people obeyed. In the last verse, we read, Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So that's a good thing, right? When they obeyed. Then concerning how the camps were to be arranged, and how they were to set out, we also see again in the last verse of chapter 2 that they obeyed, thus did the people of Israel. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out each one in his clan according to his father's house. So it certainly looks good so far, right? They're getting off to a good start. And by virtue of us being rational creatures, I say this all the time, created in God's image, there is nothing more or less that we should do than to obey everything that our Creator has told us to do. That is the way of life. Obedience is the way of life 
and the way of blessing if we want that. Moses called the people to pay attention to this truth that comes from the living God. His words in Deuteronomy 30, 19 are very helpful. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse, just like with Adam, right? It says, choose therefore life that you and your offspring may live. In other words, there is no life and there is no blessing apart from obedience to the living God. And even though eternal life does not depend on our, our obedience to the law, it does depend on Christ and, of course, his sacrifice for us. We know salvation is given to God's elect. Pastor touched on that today when he gave his overview of 1 Peter. And even though it is inevitable that his elect will believe, when the time comes that the veil is lifted, they must and they will. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I always wondered why he uses the word believe in the first part of this verse and the word obey in the second part. Now, if you're reading a New King James, it probably has believe in both. But the word is different. It's so believe and it's obey in the Greek. Now I have many thoughts concerning this and I certainly lean on a certain way of thinking. But I will say that there is a sense in which he is using obedience in conjunction with believing. In other words, though I think there is more here, I believe every chosen person must still obey the command to believe. Right? Which is, we know, a given if they are elect. They will obey the command to believe. It is inevitable. And the realization is that he has life forever. He has the ultimate blessing. We have and will have much opposition in this world. Scripture clearly tells us that just as the world hates God, hates Christ, that will also hate us as his people. In Ephesians 6.12, we are reminded of who we wrestle against. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We know that the world falls under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world system is under the sway of the wicked one. We know that the devil roams around seeking who he may devour. But we must remember another truth, a truth that is very near and close to the believer, a truth that is within every believer. And when it came to having discernment, especially concerning the testing of the spirits, the Apostle John reminded his readers of this amazing reality in 1 John 4.4. 4. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And how amazing is this church? How amazing is it to know how much power we have 
within us to live this life of godliness that we could not live if we did not have this power in us. And with that being said, there is a lot of temptation in this world. There's a lot of temptation everywhere around us, and we know that we do wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil. But in Scripture, there is, in fact, a God-given remedy that will always work if we truly allow and believe it. The brother of Christ, James, who wrote the book of James, who was leader of the Jerusalem church, says this in chapter 4 of his letter, verse 7. And I love this. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now that's an amazing and very, very powerful verse, and I really believe the way of really understanding this verse is, as we submit ourselves to God, we will be able to resist the devil. And the devil is no match for God. Right? So again, we have an obligation, and that obligation is that we are to obey the Lord in everything. And if Israel was going to have success, this was necessary for them. Then secondly, I see identification. Identification. Israel had to remember that they were identified with the living God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of not the dead, but of the living, right? The world was wicked and couldn't be any further from being identified with God. But the nation of Israel was, and so are we. So if you look at Numbers 2.2, 2, it says, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So the people literally had these banners of representation of their clan. And this clan, it was the clan that God made and put them in as the Israelites. So there was, in a good way, a sense of pride in this. Usually we use pride and it's a very negative, it's a bad thing. It's the chief of sins, we can say, right? But there is another sense of pride that's okay if we use it in this context. We should take pride in knowing that we are God's children, right? We had nothing to do with that, it was all God, right? So there was a sense of pride in this, that they belong to God, and are a member of one of his tribes. If we go back to the beginning, where Israel didn't even exist, not yet at least, we see the previous life of the patriarch Abraham, and we can see the previous life of everyone before Abraham. He was the son of Terah, who was a pagan. Look what it says here in Joshua 24, verses 1 and 2. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. 
So Abraham, his father pagan, were pagans before God had his appointment. Now, they may have worshipped the one true God as well, mixed in with all that, but it certainly was not right. In Genesis chapter 12, where we first read of Abraham, we read this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So here we see that Abraham went from his family, his old way of life, the old way that he was living, to be identified with this invisible God who spoke with him. And then concerning his offspring and Sarai being barren, the Lord said the following in chapter 15, verse 1. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's new identity was in the God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Another great character is that wonderful woman named Ruth, who was the great-grandmother of King David. But Ruth was not a natural-born Israelite. But whatever she was before, including whatever God she served before, didn't matter. What was in the past was in the past, and now she was different, and her identity was different. When she was unwilling to depart from her mother-in-law, she said those famous, beautiful words that we read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She gave her apparent profession of faith, I guess we can say here, to the one true God and chose to be identified with his people, and she, in fact, was. And so it is, and so it was with each of the tribes of Israel, with their banners, and so it is with us as his church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we read this concerning us as his elect people. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you see that these banners were symbolic and representative of something much bigger. Israel was no longer who they used to be, and church, neither are we. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that wonderful passage, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So the nation of Israel, just like us as Christians, are to find our identity in Christ and no other. You know, some people struggle with insecurities, trying to find themselves. Remember a period of my life, I feel like I'm still working on it sometimes. You're trying to find just who we really are. We get insecurities and all those different things. And we need to find our security and our identity in the very God who called us and saved us. And then thirdly, and this one was a little difficult for what I was trying. I was trying to find a word that ends in I-O-N to fit my thing, and I couldn't find it, but I think you guys will see where I'm going. Thirdly, it's going to be unification. And unification is the act of bringing everything together to function as a whole. Well, they had to be unified in everything, but what stands out most to me is their unification in totally trusting and depending on God for everything, but especially their protection. Again, in Numbers 2.2, the second part of that verse says, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And I wanted to make sure I was not be overly reading too much into this, but really, I, this really spoke to me, right? And I was trying to find, maybe in my, you know, I can, you, you read, you keep reading, you keep reading, you keep reading before I preach on it, right? But I'm confident in what I'm about to share, I really am. And the first thing that I noticed is how they were to be when they camped. They were either moving, right, or they were camping. And sometimes they would camp for longer periods of time, and other times just for rest. But it says that they camped facing the tent of meeting. And what that says to me is that their eyes were on the Lord and not worrying about what was going on around them. By them facing the tent, which was the presence of God, they were showing their trust and dependence on Him for their protection. Remember that God was the one who was going to do all the fighting. And sometimes, if you look at all of Scripture, sometimes through them actually fighting, and sometimes through doing what would seem to be something very obscure, like marching around the walls of Jericho seven times. It doesn't really make a difference. Whatever it was, they were to simply trust and obey. We know that when they first left Egypt, they were led in their journey by God through either the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, in the evening, and I wasn't sure if it ended at this moment, so I was happy to find it in Numbers chapter 9 that this was still going to continue. 
right? In Numbers chapter 9, you read this. On the day that the tabernacle, verse 15, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until the morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out, or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. All right, so we see when the cloud remained, they stayed and did nothing. And God was their protection. The pastor mentioned this morning about Jesus sleeping in the ship during the storm, right? And the disciples were fearful because their focus was on this crazy, intense storm rather than the Lord who was their protector, who was really Lord over the storm. And Jesus gently rebuked them, saying, Oh, you of little faith, you're to trust in me. Right? Protection, we know, is a need. Right? It's not a want. It's a need. And our Lord told us that we should never worry about our needs being met. He will always provide for our needs. And God was, in fact, their protection. In chapter 2, Numbers 2, verse 17, our text says, Then the tent of the meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. So when it came time to set out, the Levites, along with the broken down tent of meeting, was in their midst, with the God, with God leading. So there was order, right? The largest and strongest camp of Judah was the lead, with the second strongest of Reuben taking the rear. What mattered wasn't so much the order, though it what did, but the fact that God gave the order. God could have said something differently. From a practical point of view, Judah was the biggest and the strongest, and sometimes God works that way, but if God told Gideon that 10,000 was enough, then that would have been the right amount, but it wasn't. 300 was the right amount. So the bottom line is, it doesn't make a difference what so much the command is, but the fact that that command is coming from God and where to obey it. Proverbs chapter 3, 
verse 5 and 6 shows that Solomon knew this. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. There's going to be times that we're just not going to understand in our own minds. Therefore, verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. King David understood this as well. He said this in Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. It says, when I am afraid... He was a mighty man. He did a lot of things, right? He killed the bear and the lion, right? He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Amen. Trusting is the remedy for anxiety. Think of how often... Circumstances, our circumstances can cause anxiety in our lives. We all deal with it, right? God knows this, does he not? He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our frame. Peter and Paul knew this. 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do we believe that he cares for us, church? And when we know this, we can experience great peace, can we not? I love that passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. It says, do not be anxious about everything. Yet he's writing to people who are flesh and blood, who are dealing with anxiety. He knows that they're dealing with that. It's a physical thing, right? And yet God, Jesus can only say, speak perfectly. Right? He knows there's really nothing to be anxious about, yet we're anxious. So what does he say? Who the apostle? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, encouraging verse that is. And church, certainly Israel needed to experience this, and certainly we need to experience this. So again, just to close, we must remember these three things. That we have an obligation. That we are to obey all that is commanded. That we have an identification, our identity is in the living God and no other. And we need to have unification, meaning that unification in totally depending and trusting on our Lord. Believing what he says in his word. Clinging to his word because it is so true. And if we do this, church, we will be off to a good start. And if we continue doing these things, we will have a rich and fulfilling life until he calls us home. And I believe that's what we all want, right? So what will you choose? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life that it gives us, that it brings the truth, Lord God, the enlightening that it gives our minds and our eyes, Lord God. I thank you for 
the love that we see coming from you through your word to your people. I thank you, Lord God, that your word is true. It is a sure thing, and we can believe it. And we thank you, Lord God, because as your children, we do believe it. And we believe it because you have declared us to believe it. We cannot but believe because our eyes have been opened. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Lord. Help us to make you Lord. Forgive us when we fail to do that. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for that. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yeah. So grab your hymnals, let's stand. And we're going to talk about is that if you're in Christ, you have victory in Jesus. 353. <clears throat> I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning, then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me and I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing. How he made the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me and I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. 
about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me and I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Amen.